I think it's safe to say the pandemic has taken a toll on everyone's mental health. With mental health slowly becoming less of a stigmatized topic, why is it still stigmatized in the Black community? Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome back to season two of the From K to Z podcast. I'm your favorite monotone podcast host, Carenza, and you're tuned into episode five. I know there wasn't an episode last week. I took a little bit of a little hiatus, but I'm back now and we're going to keep it going for the rest of the season. There's only five more episodes left and it feels like the season is going by so fast, but I have learned so much this season. We've had incredible guests on so far. And guess what? This week we have another guest. But before that, did you guys see that Euphoria finale? If you did not see the finale, then low down your volume for like the next 15 seconds. But my poor baby ashtray. I was so upset by that scene. At least finally Faye kind of did something right after all the dumb-ish she did. But that was like the saddest part. And I'm really sad Fez didn't get to make it to Lexi's play. But people are saying that Ashtray isn't really dead because we only just heard a thud to the floor. We didn't actually see the body. But I'm like, I don't know if I believe that. What do you guys think? Do you think he's alive still or do you think he's actually dead? But on another note, today we're going to be talking about mental health. And if you guys have listened to my last episode, you would see I had Lana on. And we had a great conversation about meditation, Reiki, energy, and I want to keep the mental health conversation going, especially now here in Ontario. Um, Some changes are starting to be made pertaining to the pandemic and all the restrictions are now starting to loosen up. And I think, you know, the pandemic has caused a lot of people's mental health to go basically down the drain. I think it doesn't help too when during the time that we are in this pandemic, I mean, we're still kind of in it, but during like the height of the pandemic, we were also going through like the whole black lives matter thing and now like seems like world war three so it's like there was a lot of things in within the pandemic that we had to deal with as well that took a toll on i'm sure everyone's or not everyone's but a lot of people's mental health especially if you're one of those people who are very you know empathetic and you know sense other people's energy and emotions you know there was a lot of loss not even just civilians and our loved ones but even ourselves as well to some degree And I'm ready for, you know, healing to begin. You know, I think it's time. I think we all deserve healing at this point. I know there's still a lot going on in the world right now, but, you know, we got to start somewhere. So today's topic is going to be about mental health and mental health in the Black community. I have a guest coming on later to talk to us all about that, and I'll introduce her a little bit later. But first, I'm going to tell my origin story. Today's origin story is just my experience with mental health and how, you know, the stigma surrounding mental health has showed up in my family. Now, I'm not able to confidently say that there was a stigma surrounding mental health in my family because as far as what I can remember, mental health isn't really something that has really been discussed within my family. However, I do remember a comment or a couple comments every now and then about someone being depressed. Now, I don't know if this was just them feeling depressed or them actually suffering from depression because, again, it wasn't something that we really talked about. For me, mental health didn't really start to become a topic that was seriously talked about until, you know, the whole pandemic happened. 
I feel like I've gone through a lot in my life and I can't confidently say that I was depressed at those times. However, I do know that when I was in high school in grade 10, I got anxiety and I actually got diagnosed with anxiety. It wasn't me, you know, self-diagnosing. I actually got diagnosed with anxiety and that was kind of like my first, you know, experience with mental health. I know I mentioned my anxiety in my um, Exposing My Triggers episode and my Why I Need Therapy episode, both in season one. If you want to check those out, I'll put the link to those in the show notes. But um, yeah, so anxiety was like my first experience with mental health. And since then, I've definitely gone through some things that I guess have increased my anxiety and has made my anxiety worse. Um, I did go through some points where I was really down. I don't know if I was depressed or not. I can't really say for sure because it's never something that I really looked into. And I was down for a while, but then I managed to pick myself up. I can say the one time that I know for sure I was actually depressed is during pregnancy and after I gave birth. For me, I hated being pregnant, not because I had a rough pregnancy itself, but there was just so much emotionally that I was going through. The whole process of me finding out I was pregnant and the other information that I found out when I was pregnant was quite traumatic. I think I also mentioned it in another episode, but yeah, it was just, it was very lonely for me. I was single, you know, a lot of the things I experienced by myself when I felt the baby kick for the first time, I was by myself, so I felt like... It would have been nice to have somebody by my side to share those moments with and I think that all contributed to the depression that I faced at that time and then after I gave birth um you know it's just a shell shock you know my life completely changed pretty much overnight I was so tired I feel like I was sleep deprived it just was a lot for me to handle going from you know someone who had barely really any you know responsibility to having like the biggest responsibility in the world was a lot for me to handle and deal with and again like I didn't get very much support from her father so that also played a factor one time I tried to open up to him because he would call me miserable he pretty much laughed at me and threw a pillow at me and continued to call me miserable so yeah that's pretty much my experience with postpartum depression and I did not know that I actually had depression until my mom was phoning around because she started to get concerned about me phoning around you know trying to like get resources and stuff and I was told to do the Edinburgh scale and I think the um like anything like 12 and above means that you're depressed and I think I was like in the 20s so that's how I for sure knew that, you know, I was depressed. I didn't even need an Edinburgh scale to tell me that I was depressed. But yeah, in a nutshell, that was pretty much my experience with mental health. In terms of feeling like I couldn't speak about it because it was so stigmatized, I never felt like I couldn't speak about it because it was stigmatized. I felt like I couldn't speak about it because I just don't like to express my emotions. I'm just not good with vulnerability and being vulnerable. So I kind of like kept it in, which I guess made things worse. I started going to the gym. I wrote in my journal, which slowly over time started to make things better. And, you know, as time went on, like my mental health has actually, you know, improved a lot. I feel like I'm not depressed anymore. I mean, of course I have my down days, but I notice now like I'm able to like snap out of it a lot quicker and it doesn't, you know, ruin and take over my whole day like it used to. Like before it used to not even just take over my whole day. It used to take over like my whole week, my whole month, you know? So um, I'm glad to finally, be out of that and yeah that's pretty much my story I didn't want to make it too too long because we have a special guest on today and she shared a lot of good valuable information and knowledge so um, today's guest is Shante Dardane and she is a registered psychotherapist and founder of Self-Care TO which is a virtual wellness practice offering diverse tools and support on how to take care of your whole self 
She offers individual services to meet the diverse needs of people utilizing culturally adapted interventions. Outside of therapy, Shante practices and teaches yoga and is always curious about learning new ways to be well. Her goal is to provide resources and advocacy about mental health to make it more accessible, approachable, and affordable. So after this intermission, we are going to talk to Shantae. Welcome, Shantae, to the From K to Z podcast. Hello, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Excited to be here today. Yes, I'm excited to have you on because I want to discuss mental health therapy and mental health in the Black community because mental health is something that I'm committed to working on this year, and I'm sure a lot of people are as well, especially coming off the heels. Looks like we're on the back end of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I want to explore those today. But first, tell me about your company, Self Care TO, and what was your motivation behind starting it? Yeah, thank you for that introduction. And I agree. I think mental health has been something that we've all been curious about, especially in the last two years. I think our mental health was definitely put to test, you know, in a, in a way of um, having more time to spend with ourselves. And that was the big thing of where kind of self-care TO came from was trying to understand what self-care really meant for me. Growing up, uh, I grew up in Scarborough and um, self-care had always been considered kind of a luxury. So it was something that you had to have money to do. So I didn't really think about me necessarily doing self-care, but it wasn't until I started to learn more about the practice of it and really what it means. It was not about what I was doing, but it was about how I was doing it. So how I was showing up to myself. So kind of realizing that self-care was just brushing my teeth or self-care was just taking a bath or, you know, doing my nails or, you know, depending on what I feel like I need in that moment. So when I started to realize that I really wanted to advocate that, especially in the black community, that self-care is not selfish, that self-care is really about taking care of your whole self. Well, and I'm, you know, I moved to Toronto, like downtown Toronto and um, my practice started. So it kind of just all connected. So yeah, I'm just a really, really big advocate for self-care and really just trying to redefine what that means to us. Yeah, that's so true because a lot of times people don't really see like something as simple as brushing your teeth as self-care. They usually think it's always something a lot bigger and that costs a lot of money. They don't really see that like the little everyday things, the everyday things is what actually is self-care as well. Exactly. And I think the more we start to realize that self-care just means, you know, how am I pouring into myself? Then when we don't have a lot of time or access to, to certain things, then we can kind of show up in those moments with a little bit more awareness, with some compassion and with some love that, oh, I am taking care of myself because I'm checking in or because I'm caring about my hygiene, for example. So I think it's really validating. Yeah. For me, I take a long shower. Um, Not good for water saving, but I just like taking showers. It's just like, it's super therapeutic for me. I, I just like chilling in the hot water. Like I have to feel like my skin is burning. 
and I just the same I, way. Yeah, I just like to feel like my skin is burning. I just love taking like showers, and I feel like for me, that's like the one moment of the day that I'm like truly like by myself, especially now with the baby. Exactly. And I love that. I love taking showers also. I meditate in the shower every day. So uh, I like it's a way to kind of overlap it, especially if I don't feel like I have a lot of time. And I, mean, I appreciate that you brought that up because I also think self-care can also be about amplifying experiences that you already do. So sometimes we can get really overwhelmed with, I need to do X, Y, and Z, but you know, maybe it's just investing in, in a, a loofah or getting your favorite scents. You know, I, I really hopped on that trend, adding eucalyptus to my shower and it made such a huge difference, such a simple thing like that, or dropping oils on the floor before I get in, even if it's on a bath and I'm just standing up, but just to amplify that experience even more then it, it's really inviting. And then it could be different every time you go right. Depending on like the different scents that you use, or, um, as I said, you know, adding in some dried flowers, for example. Yeah. And it doesn't really take any extra time out of your day either. So that's good, especially for the people who are really busy. Yes, exactly. And that's the thing is that sometimes we can feel guilty, you know, like that we're not meeting an expectation. So self-care is usually the first to go when we start to get really busy or we have other priorities. So by slowing down and, really kind of connecting back to their needs. I, I think we're all a better version of ourselves when we take care of ourselves. So if I'm pouring into me, I can keep pouring into my clients, my clients pour into themselves, they can pour into their families. And it ends up just being this kind of domino effect, right? Right. And that's my hope is that kind of changing this narrative that we need to always be doing and going and productivity is purposeful versus really finding that rest is just as purposeful. Self-care is purposeful. And we, as I think we all know that we are, we are our best versions when we feel grounded and, and rested and we feel good about ourselves. That is very true. And I feel like social media has a way of like pushing toxic productivity. Like if you're not doing a thousand different things and you're not doing anything. Exactly. You know, I like to do, I I like watching those day of day of my life vlogs. And then I always remind myself that this person, like, I I don't want to make any judgments, but I always, maybe I make an assumption that I wonder if this is actually in one day or do they splice these things over a seven day period, you know, wonder too. Um, (laughs) you know so yeah exactly social media influences a lot and it also influences the wellness industry in creating kind of toxic positivity also right about you know just be grateful and or just you know just be happy or and I love gratitude I think when gratitude's used in the correct way it's really powerful but when we use gratitude to then negate a need then it's toxic Yeah. So I think it's, it's, you know, the wellness industry too, is just, it's can be overwhelming sometimes. And then you start to compare yourself of maybe I'm not well enough, or I need to be doing more in order to be well. So I think by creating, you know, us having these types of conversations and hopefully on my platform, I really try to simplify wellness in a way. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because 
Um, I love how you incorporate meditation and yoga into your content on Instagram. And meditation is something that I've been getting into recently. And sometimes I take a yoga class at the gym. And I think that um, meditation and yoga is something in this day and age that also appeals to a younger generation and shows that you can cater your mental health in small ways daily. So what made you decide to take interest in that and incorporate it into your platform? Yeah, so I I became a, a yoga teacher in August of 2020, so right in the pandemic. And really, I didn't really become a teacher to necessarily teach like in a studio, but I really was really drawn to the philosophy of yoga. So the practice of yoga off the mat. And yoga is something that I think just through appropriation and capitalism, we've created it as as to be a a movement practice. Um, But there's so much more about yoga. And I love that I'm able to offer this as kind of an alternative approach to therapy. Um, I believe that what cannot be said out loud can be moved through, can be drawn through, can be sung through, danced through. And I think that's the big thing with culturally adapting therapy is that talking sometimes isn't an appropriate intervention. So I really loved that it gave me an, another option to give to my clients. So doing movement and yoga in such a short way, to, in a short time frame. So not thinking that you have to take an hour of your day to go, but you can just do, you know, you can, I think about restorative yoga, you know, stay, stay in one pose for the duration of one song. So just pick four songs, you know, that's 12 minutes maybe. Right. And I think simplifying it gives people more options. Cause I think sometimes it can be black and white. I either have to do all of it or not, not anything. Cause then it's not yoga. And that's really limiting for people, right? Like, you know, let's say you're really busy and all you have is 10 minutes or all you have is five minutes. That doesn't mean that you can't do a a movement practice. You can't stretch your body or as I even advocate for 30 seconds of mindfulness, you know, and really mindfulness is there's never a saying that meditation had to be an extent of time. Meditation is an experience of one pointedness of concentration, right? Meditation is a journey into that kind of oneness with yourself. Some people may get there quicker than others, but also knowing that you can just have 30 seconds to be mindful of that one pointedness of concentration to your breath, to your body, to a sensation, to a word, to a mantra, that is beautiful because that can then go everywhere. That can go in the shower, that can go on your drive, on the subway, on a walk, you know, that could be everywhere. That could be with your kids, you know? So I think it's kind of, hopefully my hope is to kind of give, try to help people give themselves permission that they don't have to put a lot of pressure of how they show up. That's, that really, that's that's very that, that makes a lot of sense that's very smart because in the mornings I this week I just started setting a morning routine for myself because with the baby I feel like I wasn't getting anything done and I think my mornings were starting off sometimes kind of crazy it's like I always do like a one minute meditation so I'm like one that's minute awesome. it's like it's like a short enough period of time where she's not you know going crazy but I still get it done every morning and then like I write in like my five minute journal so yeah, it doesn't definitely doesn't have to be a long period of time. No, and that's six, that's six minutes of your day. 
And when we talk about self-care being selfish, that's when I say, are we, we're just judging ourselves. Like you just, like you are, you can give yourself six minutes in your day. Um, and I get sometimes it doesn't feel, and I think the purpose of it for you is different than maybe for me. And I, that's the big thing is that, you know, these six minutes may not take away all of our pain or, you know, um, make us feel great all day long, but what matters is just that moment. Yes. I rather have one minute of, I rather have moments of goodness. And that's kind of a, another thing that I advocate for is have six moments of goodness in your day. Even if they're micro moments, like, you know, your, your baby smiles at you. That's a moment of goodness. You know, that first of your coffee or tea in the morning, that one minute meditation, that journal prompt, these are just, and I think if you can, they add up over time. Yeah. Right. And it just creates a really nice balance in your day to have that moment of goodness, whatever that might be. But at least you're defining it as good. That's true. So as a therapist, how do you take care of your mental health since you do take on a lot of other people's emotions? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the number one thing is support. Um, You know, I think one thing that I learned about the last couple of years is that we really need to lean into collective healing and not expect ourselves to individually overcome distress or or any type of kind of overwhelm. So I really lean into my family, my friends. I have a therapist as well. Who has a therapist? Who has a therapist, right? Another domino effect. So really leaning into supports. Um, I also think about life as kind of a journey of learning. So if I feel stuck in something, I always think about the fact that this will pass, you know, everything passes, you know, that I love that saying this too shall pass because it's true about every single emotion. So one really big practice of yoga is not being attached to the outcome. And that's something that I try to practice every single day is that, you know, it's not a means to an end, but it's a journey. And that has really helped me in the last couple of, um, the last couple of years, because if I was attached to the outcome, I would always be waiting for the end. Um, instead of smart. Yeah. Which then my happiness is subjected to a point of time and I'm going to miss out on all the moments in between. Uh, obviously self-care is really important for me as well. So, um, slowing down, setting really appropriate boundaries. You know, I don't over, I really listen to my body and I'm lucky that I work for myself. So if I'm feeling a bit burnt out, then I can adjust my schedule, which I do. And I I practice a lot of self-compassion, a lot of self-compassion, you know, because we're all doing the best that we can. Um, And I I get great conversation. You know, I think with clients, it's so relational. You know, they've helped me as much as I've helped them through the last couple of years. So being able to move with my clients, being able to dance with my clients, to draw with my clients is just as healing for me as it is for them. So I have a lot of gratitude for the folks that that see me um, because, you know, as I said, relational therapy is we learn from one another and we learn together. You know, I never considered a therapist having a therapist. No. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because it, it is such a domino because I know my therapist has a therapist and it's such a, you know, 
And it's, it's just, I think for me, it's therapy is one of those things where traditionally it has always been kind of for crisis management. So you had to like be in crisis to reach out or something had to be really wrong. You know, a doctor would have to refer you, but I think of, I think of therapy as self-care for my clients as well. So a lot of my clients will see me for self-care purposes, like maybe once a month or once every two months. And I always make a joke that where can you go for 50 minutes and talk about yourself without feeling guilty? Therapy, (laughs) you know, where you can just not be, you know, you can just be as authentic as you want to be in that moment without that judgment. And it's something that feels so beautiful to kind of have a raw experience with yourself out loud and let somebody miss that without that judgment and with a lot of validation, a lot of love and support and compassion. So yeah, my therapist is such a important tool in my kit because, you know, it's really a place of accountability for me as well. Somebody else asking me, how are you doing? You know, what's going well for you this week? What's not working for you? Um, Because as much as I stay accountable to myself, I'm also, I also am really good at, um, I'm, I'm really good at regulating myself, you know? So sometimes I can regulate too quickly, you know? Mm. So it's nice for somebody else to hold me accountable and slow down and, and let me just experience what, what's coming up for me. Yeah, I think people automatically assume that therapists naturally have everything together. And before hearing yeah. you say that you had um, a therapist, that kind of was just like the thought in my head. I never really considered that, you know, therapists are humans too you know they experience real emotions that we also experience so yeah and we are you know we were in this collective like with everybody else you know I've never Mm -hmm. gone through a global pandemic in my life I didn't learn this in school on how to support people through a global pandemic through through loss through grief through loneliness you know um all while I was also trying to navigate it at the same time, you know? So yeah, for sure. There's definitely like, I think our awareness is because we learned it, right. That's the only difference between me and somebody else is that I, I, I learned this and I, my hope for every client is for them to become their own therapist. You know, that's my goal for everybody when they come to see me is that I want you to leave with the same awareness that I have of and the same kind of relationship with your with your mind or with your anxiety or with your depression or whatever it might be so yeah I I definitely get dysregulated because I'm I'm human Mm -hmm. you know and I get emotional I cry I get angry I I have self-judgment criticism shame all the things that you know everybody else has because yeah as you said we're human right yeah and you know and we feel we're, we're feelers. Like that's our first point of our brain is to act and feel. Right. So, and nobody's above that. So it's, I think it's really important as therapists to, you know, as we're working towards advocating is to make sure that we are speaking up about that. We're not invincible, that we're not, there's no power in balance. And I think my team at Self-Care TO really works on that appropriate self-disclosure and we really meet people where they're, where they're at and we are on the journey with you. Um, and I think that's really a really powerful connection to have with, with clients. 
Yeah, I agree. Do you think that therapy is something that everyone can benefit from? 100%. Yeah, for sure. I think, like, I think especially nowadays, there's just to have that space where you can kind of unburden yourself is so valuable. Um, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, with social media, with just fear of judgment, right. That sometimes we're constantly like maybe second guessing ourselves. There's a lot of self-doubt, imposter syndrome, you know, desire for perfectionism. So I think therapy just gives you that place to, you know, somebody else can give you a different perception. And that's really what therapy is, is that life is perception. You know, you and I can be looking at the exact same thing. It's like art and have a very different interpretation of it. And it's not to say that your perception of something is wrong, but it's just one option. So therapy allows you to challenge your current perception to find one that is more aligned with what you need. So it's a lot of brainstorming, collaborating, and, you know, really questioning what's another way to look at that. And I think all of our perceptions can be challenged. Um, So I do think that every single person can benefit from therapy. And also, you know, there was a huge chunk of your life that you didn't have the same awareness that you do have now. That's true. So why not explore? You know, I always think about, there's a book that I read once and it, it said, spend a day questioning everything, asking yourself why. And if you don't know why, then you got some work to do then, right? You know, or if you don't know what the source of this belief is or who influenced that, then you've got some work to do in terms of, you know, understanding more of yourself, understanding your behavior, your patterns. And there's something really amazing about when people walk away from therapy with me and their sense of self is, is real, you know, because they, they understand themselves and it's less judgment of like, why am I this way? And we move towards, it makes sense why I'm this way. Yeah. I think that's like why also too, what contributes to the stigma surrounding like mental health and therapy is because people just think that you go when there's something like seriously wrong. Mm-hmm. When really exactly. it could just be to just like get a better understanding of yourself. Exactly. Exactly that. And I think that with more awareness, especially, I think a lot of clinics nowadays are, are really advocating for that, that, you know, to reach out. But I I do think that it takes time because I think um, nobody wants to feel like what they're doing isn't working. Right. Um, I think that, you know, shame says, Shame's not that I'm doing life wrong. It's that I'm bad at, like, I'm a bad human, (laughs) right? So, and shame really keeps you hidden and shame is bred in, in silence and secrecy. So that's the hardest part. I think that is a barrier is that kind of shame of like, what does it mean about me that I need to go to therapy Mm -hmm. Um, that people question you know, does that mean that I'm not a good person? Does, does, does that mean that, you know, I'm failing at life? Does that mean that I just don't know how to figure this out? And because resources are so much more accessible these days, I think we have an expectation that we could just figure out, find the answer on our own. And I'm not yeah. saying you can't find the answer on your own, but why do you have, why do you feel like you need to find the answer on your own? 
And there's people here, right? There's people here who want to support you, who, you know, want to be on that journey with you as a support, not to tell you what direction to go in, but there's something, there's something collective about knowing that you don't have to go through it on your own, you know? And I think that's a really kind of Western norm of like high independence, like figure it out yourself because you're resourceful versus just asking for help. That's very true. I feel like I'm at the stage in my, I'm at the questioning everything stage in my life right now. I feel like I watch a lot of documentaries and then as I just kind of see the way the world is working, I'm kind of like, that's really weird. Like not to go down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, but there's a documentary called Out of Shadows. Mm-hmm. And that definitely like changed like my whole perception of how I see like the media right. and like news and things of that nature. Yeah. And life is just really hard right now mm-hmm. for a lot of people. So if I can make it just a little bit easier or if, if therapy can just be a place where you can have, as, as I said, that fifth, that one hour break from it all. Right. I think that's so valuable. And for some people there, and, and I'm using the word, I, I guess I, I should preface, I'm saying therapy and I'm obviously uh, thinking about talk therapy mm-hmm. and I don't want to minimize that therapy can be going to the gym for many people. Therapy can be, you know, going to get their hair done and having a conversation with their stylist. Therapy can be prayer, right? Mm-hmm. Going to, going to your place of worship, right? So therapy can really be about whatever you want it to be. Therapy can be going to that yoga class, doing those meditations, right? right. So now I don't want to minimize that people aren't accessing places like therapeutic um, places, but I, I think when I'm using the word therapy, I'm thinking about that kind of the talk therapy sense of, of me and somebody else. Um, and it's confidential, right? So whatever I said is just stay between you and I as the client with, you know, there are some uh, limitations to that, but still, I think that's what makes it also really attractive is that, you know, I'm not like anything that you say, isn't going to be, you know, I'm not going to take that and put it on social media or like talk about it with somebody else or yeah, it really is a private, private conversation. And when you get comfortable with your therapist, it feels like really good. Yeah, you probably tell them your whole life mind. story. Exactly. And many times people have said that I've never said this out loud to somebody. And I honor, and it's such a privilege for me to be able to sit with clients and sit with people and bear witness and hold their stories. And I hold them with such like tender care because I don't take that lightly when someone says that to me um, because it takes a lot of trust. Yeah, for sure. Trust. But then they feel so good. Right. And it's that relief of like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have to hold somebody. Yeah, exactly. I don't have to hold this or like, this doesn't have to be the narrative that I have to have in my head forever. Right. So now with this pandemic, in the beginning, I feel like when everything first shut down, everyone was kind of like in the DIY self care yeah. craze. And, you know, as time kind of progressed, I feel like everyone's mental health slowly started to decline. So how do you think the, the pandemic has I- impacted how we take care of ourselves and our mental health? 
Yeah, for sure. I agree. I think when that when the pandemic first hit in March, it was, yeah, I mean, I was working out with like, it was fun to work out with my canned tomatoes, you know, and doing all these like live classes and stuff. And I think it was, I think our, our perception of it was not obviously this is going to be two years long. I remember telling a lot of my clients, I'll see you in two weeks. Right. Cause at, at first they're like, we're just going to shut things down for a couple of weeks. I haven't seen them in two years, which is, which is wild. Um, one of my favorite definitions of trauma is trauma is too much too soon, too much for too long and not enough for too long. And I think the pandemic fits the criteria for all three. So when we are in a state of trauma, we end, we go into kind of a reactive state and everybody's trauma response is different, right? And I think right. this pandemic has hit everybody differently. So no two people are the same. So maybe my trauma response is to be hypervigilant and kind of go, go, go. While somebody's uh, tr- trauma response can be hypo arousal of like, you know, disassociation or depression or kind of um, slowing down or, um, you know, there's different ways that we can kind of manage our trauma. And we haven't had enough moments of safety because when we talk about the pandemic, we have to also talk about all the kind of secondary, you know, incidences that happened within it. Like, you know, BLM, like, you know, what's happening with right. the war, what's, you know, all of these elements that also, you know, were part of this experience for us that, you know, safety has something as we need to feel safe in order to process. So I think we have, as humans, our brain is meant to keep us safe, not meant to keep us happy. And safety is really about adapting. So you know, I think that's why our mental health you know, would be impacted is because we had to adapt to our external and internal influences, which for some people that might be easier to let go of. And for others, it might not be because everybody's nervous system is different, right? In terms right. of what this experience did for them you know where were they before it happened you know not everybody was also in a great place maybe before it happened or you know so it's so you know and that's why I come back to you this was a collective suffering and it takes then collective healing this is not something that we're meant to go through alone because there's no there's no playbook for this there's none you know that's very true when the pandemic happened I can't really say that it affected me that much because I was always a homebody before and at the time when everything first locked down I was in school and I was one of those people I did not like going to school so I feel like I was living my best life Mm -hmm. so it didn't really affect me that much but then after a while it kind of got to a point where it's like the opening closing opening closing opening closing it just became like really annoying to me and really frustrating because just when you start to get into a routine again then we'd lock back down so to me it was more annoying yeah the annoyance exactly and like what that what that means to the brain the brain 
goes into a state of like kind of confusion, right? Of, of, wait, should I get comfortable with this? Should I not? So the brain would just decide to just disconnect then, you know, until it, it gets consistency. And that's really what we want is consistency and reliability. Yes. So hopefully um, now with the plans and the reopening, hopefully there's some consistency there. Exactly. And we can then be reliable and we can rely on that because it takes some trust, right? I think when your trust is severed, then it's kind of, as you said, you get kind of annoyed, right? Of, you know, how long is this one going to last? And there's a little bit of resentment and resentment is having unfulfilled needs. And I think that's a big thing. I'm, I'm also an introvert. So for me, lockdown was not um, something that I was mad about either. Um, but if I had a need that I couldn't fulfill, that's when you start to feel a little, um, that's when you start to feel that resentment, right? Yes. And that unfulfillment. So, you know, choice is a big thing here as well. And the pandemic took away a lot of our choice. So, and control, we love control as humans, but we always end up controlling the things that are out of our control instead of the things that we can control. That is very true. That is very true. Yeah, for me, I would start to get annoyed when like I couldn't get my nails done or like my eyebrows done or something. That's when I was like, okay, like I'm just supposed to be around here with like bushy eyebrows. <laughs> I know. And that's like exactly right. So, and I think those moments are, are really meaningful for people. So it's tough, but I, as you said, I think, you know, we're on the tail end, hopefully, hopefully we, yep. and hopefully. You know, hope is a really important emotion and that's all we have to do is not really subject ourselves to that future, but just come stay present in the moment and just take things day by day. Yeah, that's something I have a hard time with is taking things day by day. I'm very like a forward looking type of person. I barely ever stay in the moment or in the present at all. Yeah, and I think people find... I think our human instinct, like I said, is to have controls. I think one of our thinking patterns is that like foreshadowing, right? Or fortune telling. Right. Um, and I get that, you know, those what ifs and to say and to feel prepared. And I think it's just important to have a good balance because we end up living our life then through our head instead of experiencing it in our reality. And there's some beauty that can come from being present in the moment, right? That's very true. So now to shift gears, we're going to talk about mental health in the Black community. Okay. So why do you think mental health is stigmatized in the Black community? Yeah, so I think it's stigmatized just because of, you know, stigma, as as I was saying earlier, I guess that bringing back that word of like, a sense of shame, right? And guilt, which are the factors that lead to a stigma, right? The definition of stigma means a mark of disgrace due to a circumstance. And I think that I believe that, you know, I can only kind of speak from my lived experience. I grew up in a Caribbean home. So my parents came to this country in the seventies and mental health was not something that was talked about. And I don't think it was not talked about because it was wrong. I just don't think it was talked about because it wasn't important. It was just kind of, you know, 
parents just wanting the best for their kids, my parents being in kind of survival mode, them really thinking about the important things of safety, you know, like get your good education, get a job, things like that. So I think there is that stigma because I think culturally too, I think for black people, we have been uh, pathologized a lot in the healthcare system. So there's a, a lot of mistrust as well. Um, we don't feel safe where we're supposed to, I'm doing air quotes right now, where we're supposed to feel safe, right? I think black people already feel a sense of judgment. So to go into a mental health assessment, that's what you feel. You feel judged. You feel assessed. You feel diagnosed. Right. You feel like things about you are being told that they're wrong. I remember I worked at a hospital and I worked on an inpatient psychiatric unit and there is a, a woman who was speaking in tons. And I know that as being something connected to the Caribbean culture and religion, you know, speaking to, to, to God. Right. That was something that was pathologized as being psychosis. And I remember having a conversation with some of the psychiatrists around that experience and what that means to people to hear that, right? That their belief that's ingrained in their culture and ancestors is a form of psychosis. And I think that's really unfair. And I think that that stigma then carries down in, into generations, right? Into families, into community, of, well, you know, so-and-so is, is being told that they're crazy, right? So our relationship to mental health has never been a good one in a way of it being supportive. It was just kind of another judgment. And I think for Black people, we've already, we're, we feel a sense of judgment all the time. So we want to limit our positions to, to feeling judged. You know, I also think the stigma around not, you know, going to see somebody who doesn't look like you, who doesn't have a same shared lived experience as you, who you have to then explain yourself to them, also then doesn't make therapy really attractive. So I think there's that shame again. What does it mean about me? What does it mean about me as a Black person that I have to go to therapy? Um, it's going to keep people from going to therapy and it's going to prevent people from going to therapy. And I think we're doing a great job there's a lot more practitioners who are Black, who are therapists, who are really paving the way and creating that bridge between the client and the experience of therapy. You know, majority of my clients are Black. So we always have this conversation about our shared experience of what we learned, how we learned about mental health and how it was dismissed. And when something's not inherent to our development, then we don't really know it as being an option, right? If I'm That's never true. taught, right? If I am never taught compassion, if I never am taught it, I'm not going to know it then. And that's just, that's just fact, right? So it's not, it won't be an option in my, in my mind. So when something is just not given to you at an early age or not, or, you know, if I said to, I always think about, I wonder what I would have, if I had said to my mom at like 12 years old, like, mom, I want to go to, to see a therapist. She would have just taken me to my doctor. I don't, yeah. I don't, I think that would have been the first step. <laughs> right. And, or she would tell me, you know, don't worry about it. Or, you know, you have a roof over your head and food in your belly. 
What are you sad about? Right? It would be invalidated. So, and it's not to say that that's how it is now. Definitely, it's be a very different conversations. But then it was just not their fault either, because it was also lack of awareness. This lack of awareness. That is true. I feel like sometimes it's always easy to have some kind of anger towards somebody that invalidates your feelings or dismisses you. But then sometimes you have to remember that they also, they don't know. Exactly. They don't know. And that's the big thing. And they're just doing the best with what they know, you know, and that's where that compassion comes into play. It's like knowing that it's not that our community doesn't want us to be helped, but our community is trying to protect us. Right. And if it feels like, therapy or talking about mental health is harmful, then parents are just doing the best that they they can to protect their kids or to protect their loved ones. And I'm not going to judge anybody for that. And I never want to put the pressure on the individual to change. It's the system that needs to change, right? It's the advocacy. It's the awareness. It's having more Black practitioners. It's having shorter wait times. It's making therapy more affordable, more accessible. So that needs to change. I think when we talk about the stigma in the Black community, you know, sometimes it feels like we're wrong, but the system is not inviting us in or making it safe for us. And that's why the stigma can, will maintain because if people aren't going, right? And like we talked about, stigma is stopped in conversation and advocacy, right? So it's me telling somebody I go to therapy and then that person being like, oh, okay, Shantae goes to therapy. Maybe, you know, I'll look into that. And then they go and then they tell their cousin. And that's how that stigma within the community starts to unravel when we start to have conversation about it. Right. I did a whole podcast episode titled Why I Know I Need Therapy in hopes that like it would kind of, I guess, break the stigma on a smaller scale. So maybe someone listening to it like, oh, she's talking about therapy openly. Maybe it's something that I should look into as well. Yeah. And I think doing things on a smaller scale is exactly where to start. You know, I think, yes, you know, on a systemic level, there's really fundamental changes that need to be made. And while we're doing that in your home, Right. You know, instead of thinking about let's break the stigma as much as we, yeah, we want to break the stigma in the community. Let's start with our house. Let's start having uncomfortable conversations about emotions, about mental health, around coping skills, coping tools, around needs, around, you know, let's start having those conversations. Right. And then that normalizes it, hopefully in that space. And that's a shared space in in the home and in that family. And that hopefully can start if we just start in our homes first. Then it could like slowly make a difference. Exactly. It can slowly make a difference. And I think if it starts in our homes, like that's where for a lot, you know, that's where it's, it starts. That's where it is. The stigma is, you know, it's, you know, as I said, it, it ends up just being conversation. I think, you know, like I said, I think traditionally a lot of, you know, cultures it wasn't about individual healing I remember I read an article about um in Africa how they would come in and separate them the therapist would come in and separate them individually um and they were questioned why why are you making me talk to you by myself and because 
what they wanted was this, they wanted to sit and talk as a, as a, as a group, as a family, as a village. They didn't want to have individual conversations. They wanted to have community conversations, right? So even the cultural aspects of individual therapy, even how it looks, how it feels, the whole experience of it can be really, um, can be not inviting to our community and to our cultural and our, our, our cultural, um, it's not respectful sometimes to our culture. That is true. That is very true. But sometimes I feel like in groups, sometimes people don't say the things that they might want to say. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's probably yeah. that issue as well. 100%. That fear? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because, you know, it's like I said, it's kind of like that on like that honesty. It's like, what is that person going to diagnose me? What does that mean? Um you know, and it's even just the stigma around like how mental health is even depicted in, in movies, right? It's always kind of people being crazy, you know, that's just how, how it's seen, right? So you're seeing these images of people in, and, you know, that's kind of your, your, your aspect of what you think it's going to be like, they're going to take me in and strap me down and et cetera, et cetera. So that's scary. That's so scary. That's you true. Know, they like, rarely ever show someone who is struggling mentally, like as someone who's, you know, busy working nine to five. It's always someone who's mm-hmm. like so sad and down and can't get out of bed. Exactly. Exactly. And I think representation in mental health is so important. Um, and I think we're working on representation on, on TV and, and what that looks like and what that means. Cause I think if people can just see a different way of, um, of therapy, that's not just like, you know, I remember when I first started, some people would be like, am I going to lie down? Like if you want, but you don't have to, (laughs) because that's what they were used to seeing on TV. Traditionally therapists would sit there and you would lie down. Yep. And tell you to close your eyes. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it, it's, you know, I think, I think with, and that's my hope of being on social media is for people to not just to, not to just get to know um, mental health, coping tools and meditation and breath work and all that beautiful stuff, but also get to know me and, oh, okay. Like she's cool. Hopefully people think that, and you yes. know, she's a psychotherapist, you know, she's a psychotherapist, right? It's like, Okay. It's like talking to my friend, Yeah, you know, I'm going to have a good conversation with her. And I think that's like the, one of the benefits of social media is that a lot of psychotherapists are coming out and we're creating more of a personal approach to therapy. So it's not just a random referral that your doctor makes and you have no idea where you're showing up to. Yeah. And I always get this question of like, what does therapy look like with you? And I'm still working on ways to kind of figure out how to, explain the therapeutic process in more of a visual way mm-hmm. um, so that people can really under and it's hard because every therapy looks different like I said sometimes I'm dancing with somebody sometimes I'm talking sometimes I'm doing yoga um, you know it looks different but I'm still working on ways that I can kind of visually represent the therapeutic experience um, so that people can see like oh okay it's not it's like, I might, you might be nervous the first five minutes, but then I, I usually am well at breaking the ice. 
That's good. Yeah. I was we looking want- on your Instagram mm-hmm. and I saw a post that you put up regarding Black Mental Health Day last year and how anti-Black racism impacts the mental health of Black people and that healthcare professionals are working to include racism as a stressor for PTSD, but that yes. cultural and systemic barriers are a big part of why Black people aren't reaching out for help. So why do you mm-hmm. think the system has suppressed the impacts that racism has and what can healthcare and mental health professions do? to change that? Yeah, I think it's a really, really great question. I think, you know, our our understanding of like anti-racism in, in, in healthcare settings or just in, in the workplace in general has been a really, it, it's been a conversation that's always been around, but I think the last couple of years, I think there's a lot more um, accountability on these kind of, on these companies and on these spaces. Um, I think it was, I think it really comes down to representation, you know, like not having enough representation means that our voice was just not being heard in a lot of the development of, um, of programs in hospitals or, or community initiatives that go on in terms of, um, in terms of wellness, like it's not equitable at all. I mean, to access psychotherapy, you either have to pay out of pocket or have benefits. In order to have benefits, you need to be working full-time um, some, or be a student, for example, right? And benefits are also limited. You know, some people have access to 300, some people have access to 5,000. So the people who usually have access to 5,000 are working in, you know, in a a level of a job that can afford that, right? And not everybody also gets access to benefits in in working either, or, you know, um, that can afford one or two sessions. And I get it, you know, I would, I wish that therapy was free. Uh, That's my hope is that it becomes OHIP covered eventually, because, uh, it's just not equitable in, 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 in how we're accessing it. And I do my best. And I think a lot of people do their best to offer, you know, affordable therapy so that we are working with marginalized communities or oppressed communities that aren't the ones who are normally accessing it. So it's how can we make our, um, our healthcare system approachable? to the people who, who need it, right? And language is really important. Um, a misunderstanding a lot of the time in terms of, you know, as I said, if you're not, if you don't grow up with it, then it's not something that is inherent to your understanding. So how we're making sense of mental health and our programs, our initiatives. Um, and those are some of the barriers I think is like the language, the wait times, you know, right now referrals can be up to six to 12 months. Um, Having more representation in healthcare, you know, having doctors and nurses and psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists who who look like the people that that are black and brown and in our BIPOC community right? That our culture is being taken into consideration instead of it being pathologized is a big one. It's a really important one as well. So I think we're working on that. I think, you know, for me, I'm currently out in London, Ontario. I'm on the anti-racism mental health board here. Um, And one of our big, um, one of our big conversations is around that is how to make, um, how to make mental health more accessible to the Black community. 
Um, and that's really a really important initiative that we're taking right now. That's, that's honestly really good. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm in it for the long game. It's not something that can happen overnight. So it really just right. is about kind of being, it is about in that long game. And the, the most important thing is that there are such great advocates right now who are really holding folks accountable. And that's so, so important because I think there's a lot of fear around holding people accountable of, you know, um, but I think that we're just not afraid anymore. You know, and I think not that we were not that um, I just think in the last couple of years is just there's just been more allyship and, and more solidarity around these difficult conversations that we're just we're just not letting people get away with things anymore. Yes, and I feel like that's one good thing that came out of this whole pandemic. Mm-hmm. If people got more comfortable with the uncomfortable. Exactly, exactly, because we we were exposed to a lot of uncomfortable things and, you know, we couldn't avoid it. And we, and we shouldn't have, you know, I think, as I said, I think with more people who are, who are starting to get into positions that their voice is being heard, that if it's not heard, then we're yelling. <laughs> Very true. So you mentioned making therapy um, more affordable and I have seen that you have an affordable therapy program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the affordable therapy program is for people who are who don't have insurance, pay out of pocket. It is for the BIPOC and LGBTQ plus community. Um, so there's a, a kind of a criteria there. It's a 12 session program. So it's meant to be a brief therapy just because we want to be able to rotate new people in. But obviously, if a client meet, gets their 12th session and they still need more. It's not like we're going to, you know, tell them that it can't keep coming back to therapy. So that program is open. We are still accepting clients for that program. So people can apply online um, or even send me an email at Shantae at selfcareto.com. And on an individual level, you know, I definitely think that sliding scale is really important. So a lot of our therapists, like even outside the affordable therapy program is still too expensive. And we will work with our clients on a case by case basis. Um, Cause I've had clients who got laid off during this pandemic, you know, so they, they had access to benefits and they stopped, right. you know, so I would adjust their price to fit a number that worked for them in that moment, you know? Um, and then, you know, readjust that if they got a new job. So it's really about like having that open conversation of like what works for you. And I get it. Like we have bills to pay as therapists, you know, Mm -hmm. that's why prices get inflated because everything else that we are paying for also gets inflated. If I didn't, as I said, I wish I didn't have to charge people for therapy, Um, but I have to, in order to make a living as well. So, you know, it's just about me being really fair. So I, I do have like it in an idea of like some people pay more for therapy and other people pay less. I do have a pretty large portion of my therapy that is sliding scale. I see. I think it's kind of unfortunate how like when people, you know, get laid off, especially due to the pandemic, that a lot of their extra things that they pay for out of pocket or with benefits end up something that they have to let go of like therapy and if it's something that's so important and making such a huge difference in their life it's unfortunate that it might be something that they have to you know sacrifice in order to put food on the table exactly and I think some companies did 
I know a few companies who let people keep their benefit package, at least they're, they kept paying for their benefits up until a certain point, but you're right. You know, it's, that's the thing about social determinants of health, that it's not just the job that we're losing. It, it is a lot of other things that a layoff can do and can ripple. It can create a ripple effect into other areas. Very true. So where do you see self-care Tio in, let's say five years? Oh, so one thing about me is that I am the opposite to you, I guess. I live only in the present moment. <laughs> I see. People get really annoyed at me um, because I'm so bad at court, like planning for a year because I'm like, I will plan for every three months. But that's just because I just know things like, because I know the version of me from now and in five years, it's going to be the same person, but my experience of life will be different. Right. I'm going to acquire a lot of new information. I'm on this journey of exploration, of understanding, of reflection. So, I mean, I still plan on obviously being a psychotherapist in five years, growing self-care to you and keeping this mission up of affordability, accessibility, and approachability. That's our mission. Um, I really would like to get more into the teaching, teaching aspect. I really love offering workshops um, because... You know, I see people one-on-one and my practice is full. So I normally, you know, I like to do workshops because it gives me an opportunity to see more people. people. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely see my, my practice moving more into kind of a teaching aspect of teaching people more about mental health, more about their body, like specific elements of their body. Um, you know, I love the science of mental health. And I think with, with understanding comes compassion you know, and less judgment. So that's where I kind of see myself, I guess, in a nutshell in the next five years is, is really keeping on this journey of awareness of education. I would like to pour more into my, um, my meditation. So I write all my meditations myself. So I want to start doing a little bit longer guided meditations right now I just kind of you know, just post like the 30 seconds on social media, on Instagram, but I'm hoping to do maybe just more like five minute, 10 minute guided meditations Mm -hmm. that can just be an experience for you of self-care. And then follow up that with uh, journal prompts because I really love journaling. Um, Excuse me. So yeah, that's where I guess, but specific things, it's not that I don't have goals, but I'm, I'm a very much a present day liver. So I, I don't really overthink what the next three months of my life look like, because the next three months of my life seem tangible. The next three years seems it doesn't exist. Yeah. 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 That definitely, (laughs) it's probably a lot less stressful to live in the present because sometimes you get, you spend your present stressing about the future. Yes, exactly. Exactly that. And I just feel like when you over plan, you have expectation. And what I've learned in the last two years is like anything can happen. Yeah. And I think we're really good at adapting and, you know, um, pivoting was the word of 2020. Right. Mm-hmm. But I find that when we are present, there is less disappointment because you're just, you're able to kind of see like where you're at in, in combination to the world. I think if it was just me and I had control over everything, I would plan my whole life out. Um, but because it's not just me, anything can really happen. So yeah. Very true. And I, yeah, I think when I think of five years, it makes me, 
yeah, I'm like, oh my goodness, five years. I don't even know what's that, 20, 20 something, seven? <laughs> yeah. 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 That sounds like I'm living in the future, like a future. <laughs> yeah, five years definitely is a long time. Like, I'll be 27 then. Yeah, then. yeah right. I know. It's always, yeah. I always think about the, I have a, a nephew and I'm like, how does it feel like when you started the pandemic, you were like 10 and now you're almost 13? Does that feel weird to you? <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, it feels really weird to me. I feel like I became an adult overnight. Yes, like time just like flew by. I spent my 20th birthday, my 21st birthday in lockdown. Like that's when we were super locked down. Before lockdown, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. you're coming. Yeah, and you'll be coming out. Yeah, I guess you started in March. So like, yeah, it was like the day we locked down. There's one my birthday. It was the day of my birthday. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You'll always remember that. I think my birthday is the end of February. So I remember that was the last time I had a, like a party and yeah. with, and then went on lockdown maybe, yeah, like two weeks after. So, oh, those are memories that we still hold on to. Mm-hmm. I was so upset because I had like these big plans Yeah, <laughs> and had to like cancel them. It was so upsetting to me. Yeah, I know. I bet. Yeah. So you mentioned journaling and journaling is something I mentioned on the show almost every episode because I like journaling. I feel like it's easy for me to write my thoughts down, except for sometimes I don't do it when I feel like I have way too much to say mm-hmm. or write. So what are some of your favorite like journaling practices? Yeah, I think I love like I really like like bullet journaling. So I bullet journal like in the notes of my phone. Um, or I like to do like specific prompts, like a specific topic or a specific feeling. So I don't journal every day because I think that when I do that, it, it, it's, it becomes a practice, which I, I appreciate, but for me, journaling is a tool that I go to when I need it. So I think it could be any, it can be something for everybody. I think it could be like a kind of a routine practice, self-care practice, or it can be a practice that you use when you need so for me, um, yeah, like when I need it, my journal is, I leave it really accessible for me on my nightstand. And then I just kind of go to it and I outpour what I need to outpour, or I'm really trying to figure something out. So I'm doing like a, a journal exercise that I learned where you kind of write the, you write the um, statement that I'm having a hard time with, and then you do a downward arrow. And then you ask yourself, like, what does this mean about me? And you keep doing that until you can't answer it anymore. And then wherever I end up, that's what I write about. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love like, some, like kind of doing like an unconscious stream of writing. So just kind of writing my thoughts down, um, not rereading it, but like just kind of dumping that. And there's also a really lovely journal exercise called worry time, where you kind of just dump all your worries and you cross off everything that's out of your control and you, you then you make a plan of action for all the things that are, are in your control. I'm so sometimes my, pardon? I'm going to do that one. Yeah, I love that one. And so sometimes my journaling is a bit more productive based and sometimes my journaling is more reflective based or storytelling. And there's something really lovely about like collecting these journals. So I also think that that's like your book, right? That you have for, for your life. That is true. Yeah. Um, also, what are some daily mental health practices we can do? 
Yeah, I think some, you know, some, what we, we've been talking about today is, you know, kind of giving yourself self-care. So um, checking in with yourself, I think having a daily checking is really powerful. Just either if it's in the morning or at night, like, you know, where am I today on a scale of zero to 10 or, um, you know, what did I like, well, went well today or what didn't go so well today and I can kind of work on tomorrow having a check-in moment with yourself and even checking in with a sensation or a feeling I think your body is a great tool so if you start to feel like a little like tension in your neck then you kind of you know are you listening to your body's needs um I think mental health is health so for me I always think about practices of like drinking water and, and eating and um, those are really just like fundamental practices as well. When it comes to specific tools, I always recommend to get really good at one thing. That way, you know, it's like reliable and consistent. So whether it's meditating, um, whether it's yoga, whether it's journaling, whether it is having a check-in moment, um, whether it, it's like doing a, a mental health kind of exercise whatever it might be for you, um, just get really good at it and keep, keep it consistent. And whatever it is that you do on a daily, on a daily practice, let it be meaningful to you. Let it be something that you need and make it, make an intention. You know, what do I want to receive from this practice or what do I want to release? So if showering is something that is your daily practice, it can be different every day. If you set an intention, Right. So always think about, you know, daily practice of your mental health. Your mental health is always about, you know, what do I need more of or what do I need less of? And can I do something that will intentionally show up to that? And then anything can be a practice. I like that. Some, that's some good advice. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. Have you so it's seen- good to hear it out loud to remind myself a bit too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Have you seen the show in treatment? I haven't, no. It's an HBO show. You can watch it on Crave. And it's basically about this Black woman. And she's a therapist. And it's it walks you through. I think it's like four weeks. for, And there's like three people that she's like, three clients that she has. And each mm-hmm. they tell you like each client's first week and week two, week three, week four. And it's like a whole like story. Oh, I wow. really like that show. I, I wrote it down. Has anxiety. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I wrote it down. I'll look into it. Yeah, it's a good show. Amazing. Yeah. So any last comments? Where can we find you? Where can we connect with you? Yeah, no, I really appreciate this conversation today. Um, You can find me at selfcareto on Instagram. My website is www.selfcareto.com. And you can see our team Uh, You can read about more about self-care and also find that affordable therapy form. Um, And yeah, I'm always, you know, even if I'm not accepting new clients, I'm always here as a resource. I really appreciate if people, when, when people reach out to me asking for support and helping them find a therapist or even like mental health resources in the community. So yeah, I just want to be a therapist for the community. So I'm always here even if it's not maybe in a therapeutic capacity, um, I'm always here as a support or a resource at least. Yeah. So I will include all of your links into the show notes of this episode. So anyone listening, if you want to check her out, you can find them in the description. 
And um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having this fantastic conversation with me and um, talking all things self-care. It's something that I'm sure we could talk about for hours. So yes. I'm, I'm really grateful to have been here today and to, to share my opinion. Yes, no problem. All right, all the best. I really enjoyed the conversation with Shantae. I hope you guys loved it too and were able to take something valuable away. I hope everyone listening to this saw this as a sign to work on bettering your mental health this year. And, you know, as Shantae said, working on your mental health is not just, you know, seeing a therapist. It could be yoga, it could be going to the gym, it could be, you know, taking a few extra minutes in the shower. Whatever makes you feel good mentally, do more of that this year. Now, as usual, I'm leaving you guys with a quote. So today's quote is, just because no one else can heal or do your inner work for you doesn't mean you can, should, or need to do it alone. And that is by Lisa Oliveira. And with that being said, I hope you guys have an amazing week. Check out the show notes for um, Shantae's links and for the links to the episodes that I referenced in the beginning. Also, don't forget to give us feedback on the Google form also in the show notes and follow the From K to Z podcast Instagram page because that's where you'll get, you know, first dibs on who the guests are. And also we have discussions on there regarding to the episode. And so you don't want to miss this week's So, And I hope you'll be back next Monday.